Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. Here we are continuing our series on the Psalms of Ascent with James Jordan, and here he's going to discuss Psalm 127. Do take a look at those links in our show notes. Specifically, we'd love to invite you to come to our summer conference here in Birmingham, Alabama. That conference will be held on July 18th and 19th and will be on the topic of victory and hope. You can find more information about that conference and a link to register at that link down there in our show notes. As always, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this time of teaching. And here's James Jordan discussing Psalm 127. Our psalm is number 127 this evening. Psalm 127, a song of ascents, sung as the people would approach Jerusalem for the feasts. This time a song composed by Solomon. This is one of the few Solomonic psalms. We expect to find that it has a lot of wisdom, that it resembles the Proverbs, perhaps the book of Ecclesiastes, and indeed it does. I'm going to ask a question now, and as we read, I want you to notice if you can find a key in here which would make this psalm remind you of the book of Ecclesiastes. Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of toilsome labors, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a gift or heritage of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is his reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They shall not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. Okay, who finds the connection with the book of Ecclesiastes? Hands, anyone? Floyd. Vanity. Right, vanity of vanities. Okay. Three times the word vain is used. It's not actually the same Hebrew word as the word used in Ecclesiastes, but the conception is quite similar. Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, for those who don't remember that, and here is a connection. We expect to find a wisdom orientation in this psalm, and wisdom reminds us that the law of God is given to tune us in to the truth, and wisdom fine-tunes us, brings everything into sharper focus. It provides material for deep thought, and there's a certain amount of deep thought in this psalm. Let's look at something and see if we can figure out a key to the psalm. Verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labor. Now, can you think of someone who was told to build and to guard, but who messed it up and as a result had to engage in painful labor? Anybody think of someone? Did you say Adam? Right. Adam was told to dress and keep the garden. To dress the garden is to build it. To keep the garden is to guard it. The word keep is the same as the word guard. So, Adam was the one who was to build the house. But because he didn't trust the Lord, he began to labor in vain, emptiness. Adam was the one who was to guard or keep the garden. But because he didn't trust the Lord, 
he kept awake in vain. In fact, it became vain, and Adam had to start rising up early and working all day long, and he couldn't go to bed till late at night. And all the time it was very painful labor. By the sweat of your brow you will earn bread. Yes, you get some bread. You get to eat the bread of painful labors. This comes straight from Genesis 3, verse 19. I'll flip to it and read it. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. Verse 17. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it. By the sweat of your face, verse 19, you shall eat bread. And here, the bread of painful toil. The same identical conception as we find there in Genesis 3, 17 and 19. So here's the curse. You do get to eat bread, but it's very painful, difficult labors. And there's the Adamic curse. But what does God do for those who trust him? It says he gives to his beloved sleep. Now, Sometimes some of your Bibles may say he gives to his beloved in his sleep, as if while Christians are asleep, God gives to them. Well, that's true, although the Bible really stresses the need to work hard in order to find the blessing of the Lord. But that is not the best translation of the Hebrew here. No, it just simply says, thus or truly he gives to his beloved sleep. Can anybody think back to Adam in the garden and tie sleep, that God gives sleep, in with Adam. Floyd. Okay, making of Eve, and out of that come the children, which the psalm is going to go ahead and talk about. Something else a little bit more extended. Not death. Some of you children who have been in Mr. Dwelly's class, can you help us out? For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and all that in him is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. The sleep here speaks of the Sabbath rest, which the wicked never get to enjoy because they have to labor continually. They rise up early, they retire late, they eat the bread of painful labors, but to his beloved, and remember that Solomon had another name. Does anybody remember Solomon's other name? It's the one you're all planning to name your firstborn son, Jedediah. Jedediah means beloved of the Lord. Okay, so there's Solomon's signature here. Solomon is the beloved here. He gives his beloved sleep. Those who are true Christians not only work, but they can also experience Sabbath rest. The great example of that was somebody who went to sleep during a storm. Who was that? Somebody under 20 has to answer this. Who? Jesus. Jesus slept during the storm. That's right. He was God's beloved, wasn't he? God gave him sleep after his labors, even in the midst of the storm. All right? Now we can understand this, can't we? Unless the Lord builds the house, whether it's the house that Solomon built for God, or whether it's the palace that Solomon built for his family, or whether it's the house that you and I are trying to build with our families, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. As Adam's job, it's your job too. Unless the Lord guards the city, like Adam was to guard the garden, and as you and I have to guard our civilization and our families, unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early and to retire late and eat the bread of painful labors. Truly he gives to his beloved sleep. 
Now, you may say, well, there's some things left out in there. True, that's what wisdom literature is like, and this is a wisdom psalm. But as we meditate on it, then we can see the connection. Christians work, but they also rest, and they get to sleep. They can lie down and sleep in security, knowing that God is in control. But the wicked never get to rest. Now we can move on. Having seen the need to build a house and the vanity of trying to build a house and guard the house without God, now we come in the second half of the psalm to God's method of building and guarding the household. Behold, children are a gift or heritage of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. That's how God builds the household. Always in the Old Testament, people didn't have children. They wanted them to build up their household. Sometimes they got one child. Sometimes they got 12 or 20 or 60 children, depending on how many wives they had. But they wanted children to build their household, and it was a tragedy not to have children. One of the great tragedies was for the woman or the husband to be unable to give birth to children. And God miraculously opens the womb of Abraham's wife. And then he miraculously opens the womb of Isaac's wife. Then he miraculously opens the womb of Jacob's wife. And then he miraculously opens the womb of Samson's mother, and of Samuel's mother, and of John the Baptist's mother, and of Jesus Christ's mother. All of these wombs are barren and closed, but God gives them children, the fruit of the womb. Children are a gift from the Lord. Now, your Bible might say, sons are a gift of the Lord. And, of course, it's better to have boys than to have girls, right? We all know that, that the Bible clearly teaches that. No, the word here is the word ben, as in ben-her, which means son of her. And it means son, but it also means children in the plural, generally speaking. It's just like we talk about men of God. Does that mean that we don't talk about women of God? When we sing the song, Rise Up, O Men of God, does that mean only the men are supposed to stand and sing that song? All the ladies are supposed to keep their seats? No, in English we use the word man to refer both to male and female. It has a generic use and a particular use. And in Hebrew, the word son, as in sons of Israel, means children of Israel. It has a generic as well as a particular use. And here it's very obvious children, not just sons, are a gift of the Lord. We'll see that as we look in the context. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children, that would be the better translation, not sons, but children, of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They shall not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. Now this speaking with the enemies in the gate is not so much a military confrontation as it is a legal confrontation because it was the law court which met in the gate. And we'll look at that in a minute. Now it says here, we need to dispose of this real quick, how blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. About a month ago when I was out of town, I went to a kind of a prayer meeting of a friend of mine who was getting married, and one of the other men said, you'll want to have a quiver full of children, and a quiver is 12 or 13. Well... I don't know of anybody in the Bible who had that many kids. In the last century, people had lots of kids, 12, 15, 20. Jacob had 13 children, but he had four wives. David was one of eight. But there's nothing wrong with having a lot of children. The problem with what he said was that quivers didn't hold 12 or 13. Quivers held 30. 
That was your standard over-the-back quiver. Your standard chariot quiver on the side held 50. So unless you're planning to have more than one wife, you're going to have to not take this literally here. This is more of an analogy. We'll have to look at precisely what the analogy is in a minute. Now, if this means sons and not just children, then you've got to have 30 sons. You'd also probably have 30 daughters, so you've got to be prepared, ladies, to have 60 kids in order to get those 30 sons to fill up your quiver with sons. So I think we need to back off from attempts to find out precise numbers in this passage. And I've heard various times people try to say quiver's 8 or quiver's 12, but really it'd be hard to go into battle with that few arrows. You'd need more, and actually 30 is what the Illustrated Bible Dictionary gives as your standard quiver. We would have to ask this, too. If Samson was your boy, would you say you had a quiver full? Yeah, probably Samson all by himself was a quiver full. When he was a little boy, he was probably a handful. When children are little, they're a handful. Hopefully, when they get big, they become a quiver full. So it's more the quality of covenant children than it is the quantity that's being spoken of here. All right? It's more the quality. What we want, whether we have one or twelve children, whether we've adopted eight and have twelve of our own for a total of twenty or what, is that our children be like arrows so that our family is like a quiverful. It's not so much quantity as quality, although there is implied, obviously, in the blessing in the Bible, you see a sort of a norm of around four children. Three or four is very frequent in the Bible. Moses was one of three. Then you find four and five. That seems to be sort of your average. Then you find larger and smaller families. But I don't think quantity is the thing in view here. Having said that, let's look a little bit further and see what this speaking with the enemies in the gate is. As we read this, first of all, we tend to think in military imagery. Somebody's come to the gate of your town and everybody goes out with arrows to get ready. Well, that might happen, but the expression speaking to the adversary in the gate is more of a legal concept. Those of you taking notes, and I notice that most of you are, may want to take down as an example of the word gate used as the law court where the elders sat. Genesis 19, verse 1, Deuteronomy 25, verse 7, which we shall look at in a second, Joshua 20, verse 4, in the entire fourth chapter of Ruth, you'll remember that all the transactions there with Boaz and the next of kin took place in the gate. Isaiah 29:21, Lamentations 5, verse 14, and Amos chapter 5, verse 10. Now, I just want to read, that's Amos 5.10, I do want to read Deuteronomy 25, verse 7, which is in the law, so it not only illustrates the use of the gate as a place for the law court, but it almost prescribes it. But if a man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He's not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Okay, that's the leveret law. But it actually prescribes that the elders are going to be there in the gate. We can think about this clearly if we think about baptism. Baptism is the doorway into the house of God, and those who are baptized get to come in and eat at the meal. And the elders, so to speak, have got to stand at the doorway, and they've got to keep people out who have not been baptized. 
And on the other hand, they stand at the doorway, and if someone sins, they kick them out through the door. And so the guarding of the door or gateway is an elder function. And it was in the ancient world as well. You didn't want a bunch of rough guys coming into the city. And so the elders might stand there and keep people in, or if somebody was going to be cast out of the city, they'd cast them out. So the gate of the city, the place of entry and exit, came to be the place where the law court was held, and you always see that in the Bible. Now, when we take this out of the realm primarily of martial war imagery into law court imagery, you can see why whether your children are sons or daughters, they can still fight for you in the gate of the city. Because we see women can take their cases before the court. Women didn't very often serve in the military in Israel. And if this was primarily about the military, then we might be right to say, as a Roman Catholic expositor would tend to say, sons are a blessing from the Lord. Men are better than women. Boys are better than girls. They're higher on the scale of being. God loves boys more than girls. People should want boys more than girls. It's better to have boys than it is to have girls. Pray for sons. Pray that God won't curse you with daughters. That's the way Roman Catholics reason, and don't think that that mode of thought is absent from Protestant churches, because it is far from absent. It's not the way the Bible reasons. No, we see plenty of times women taking their cases to the court. We just read one example. I'd like to read to you one other. This is in Numbers 27. A rather famous case where some women went to the elders and made their own case. And if anybody can remember right off the bat, what's Numbers 27 about? This is real Bible trivia time. No one knows. Then the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hepher, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, of the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, came near. And these are the names of the daughters of Zelophehad. Who knows them? Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milcha, and Tirzah. And they stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest and before the leaders and all the congregation at the doorway, see the doorway, of the tent of meeting, which is equivalent to the gate in the wilderness. And they said, Our father died in the wilderness, yet he was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but he died in his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be withdrawn from among his family, because he had no son? Give us a possession among our father's brothers. And Moses brought their case before the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, The daughters of Zelophehad are right in their statement. You shall give them, surely, a hereditary possession among their father's brothers, and you shall transfer the inheritance of their father to them. Okay? Now, that shows that women inherit where there are no sons. It also shows that women can bring their own case into the court. Well, let's drop back one step and say, this also implies here in the psalm, speaking with the enemies, what if in the law court the enemies just decide they're not going to abide by the decision, and so things come to war, and it's necessary to go out and fight? Is having daughters a liability? By no means. We can see that, just how having a daughter can really be an arrow in your quiver in Judges chapter 1. And this is a story about a girl who didn't do any fighting at all, and yet she was a real arrow in the quiver. It says in Judges chapter 1 verse 12, Now Caleb said, The one who attacks Kiriath, Sephir, and captures it, I will even give him my daughter Axa for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenneth, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, so he gave him his daughter Axa for a wife. Now, the point of this is, if you don't have sons, you can have son-in-laws. And they can speak to the enemy at the gate. And if you have good daughters, then you're going to have good son-in-laws. So even in the military aspect, there's no problem with having daughters. Children of either sex are a gift in this capacity, note, 
I mean, we all know that daughters are precious. And everything I've said about being funny in here, let's just forget all that. We all know that girls are as important as boys and that daughters are precious. The point of the psalm is that these children are useful for guarding. Adam's task was to dress and to keep the garden. The Lord is going to build the house and guard the city. And this says children are a gift for building, and then it says they're a gift for guarding. And it talks about being arrows and the quiver and speaking to the enemies. The questioning comes, are daughters as good as sons for that purpose? And because people raise that question, I have seen fit to go into a little bit of detail. And the answer is daughters are every bit as good at guarding a culture as sons are. In the more general sense of guarding the culture through art and literature and influence, in the specific sense of guarding the culture through appearing in law courts, in the specific sense of guarding it in the military by marrying and bringing sons-in-law. You have to remember, too, that your sons, once they marry, they're no longer yours. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. The Bible says the man leaves. Fathers who think they can control the future of their children after marriage have made a big mistake. I've talked to men on the mission field from time to time, and they'll say, well, I want my boys and girls to grow up and come back out here on the mission field. That's my plan for my family. Well, that's fine to want that, but you can't control that. Once they're married, they leave. And Isaac actually moved away from where Abraham was, and Isaac later on moved away from where Jacob lived. In Genesis, the leaving is actually geographical, not just psychological. Both the daughter and the son leave. And so when it talks about children growing up and being like arrows in your quiver, you can't get a patriarchal idea out of this. Like the grandfather is in charge of all the sons and the grandchildren and he's mobilizing an army. This is talking more generally and culturally. That to any culture and to families in particular, children are a gift and the children of one's youth in particular because you get to see them grow up and you get to be proud of the things that they do and they get to help you in your old age. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them, not in the sense that he controls them absolutely, but in the sense that having raised them up properly, they'll defend the same things he defends, they'll guard the same values he guards, and they will help in the building up and the guarding of the city of God, and there'll be no vanity. So in general, the psalm tells us this, God builds the house, God guards the house. The way God builds the house is through the family. The way God guards the house is by bringing up children who are qualitatively like arrows in the quiver. Whether you have one or twenty, you want arrows. You want children who can speak with the enemies in the gate. Let's read it all. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It's vain for you to rise up early and to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors. Truly he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They shall not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. Unless Yahweh builds a house, in vain they labor who build it. Unless Yahweh guards a city, in vain the watchman stays awake. It is vain for you being early to rise, being late to stay up, eating the bread of sorrows, 
for he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, a heritage from Yahweh our children, a reward is the fruit of the womb. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Blessed and merry is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be shamed when they speak with adversaries in the gate. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, age after age. Amen. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.